Welcome to the 384th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with writer Alexis Henderson, author of the debut novel, The Year of the Witching. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Alexis Henderson, author of the debut novel, The Year of the Witching. Alexis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great. If someone listening hasn't heard about your debut novel, The Year of the Witching yet, how would you describe the novel? So The Year of the Witching is a um, dark fantasy slash horror novel, and it follows our protagonist, Emmanuel Moore, who lives in a society that's ruled by the prophet and his church. And one day, Emmanuel is lured into the forbidden dark wood that surrounds her home. There she encounters the spirits of four witches who reveal secrets about the prophet and church. Do you remember the original idea that led you to write The Year of the Witching? I do. I, I got an image of a young girl in the middle of the forest crouched at the feet of a monster, a creature with the body of a woman and the head of a deer skull. And that was the first image I got of the book. And I pursued that and tried to build the world around it. And what are your earliest memories of reading in books? I remember my mom reading me Goodnight Moon, which I still love to this day. Weirdly, I, I just reread it to myself a, a couple of days ago. And I'm just, I'm always floored by how much I love that story. And I think it opened so many doors for me in a weird way because it portrays the night, which I was something spooky and dark as something comforting. And I, I think that kind of set me on this path of examining things that were told are, are dark or scary and seeing if there's something more behind that. And so what was your path to writing and publishing your debut novel? Had you always wanted to be a writer? What was your transition from reading and enjoying books to wanting to write your own stories and then later writing this novel? I started writing novels at a fairly young age. The first novels that I count, I I drafted on, I think it was like a Word document or something. And when I was like 13 
maybe 12 or 13, I started writing these really long, longer than what I write now, fantasy novels. And they weren't good at all. And they were filled with like <laughs> cliches and tropes, but I kept at it. And I I learned a lot, of course, by by reading the work of authors that I admire. And through through doing that, I developed my own voice. And my senior year of college, I wrote The Year of the Witching. And so I'm curious, have you given it any thought? What kept you going? Because a lot of people, what you just described, for whatever reason, a lot of people don't stick with it and make it past those early novels that are filled with cliches to a point where they find their own voice and they give up along the way. Now, that's a bad thing. Not everyone needs to write a novel, but I'm curious, what kept you going back and continuing to write? I think I take a lot of comfort in writing in general. It, it makes me, it, it helps me to understand things about myself and, and the world. So in, in a way, it's a coping mechanism. And I think that's why I kept returning to it. But I think that the reason why I got better is slightly different. And it's tied to the fact that I learned to be honest with myself about when my work wasn't good <laughs> and and to accept that and realize I don't have to be prolific and amazing and a great author all the time. Maybe I never will be, but being honest about my own failings and shortcomings and doing my best to address them and being kind to myself about those things was crucial when it came to the process of learning to write. I don't want to say, but like <laughs> learning to write in a way that made me like more content with what I was putting out. Sure. And I'm curious, is it possible for you to articulate what you did do to address those shortcomings that you mentioned and that you identified? Yes. I'm a firm believer that one of the worst habits or patterns that many like baby writers, let's say, or people who are just getting started with the craft fall into is not finishing the things that they start. I certainly fell into that trap where I would uh, start books, I would get like 30,000 words in usually and just abandon the project. And eventually I came to realize the fact that I would never learn how to write books if I wasn't finishing books. You don't know how to write a book if you're not actually making it through to that third act. So once I I started approaching books with this intention of I'm going to finish the thing that I start, even if the thing is bad, I was able to actually learn how to write books before I thought that I knew how to write books, but I wasn't actually finishing them. So I, I just knew how to write act one <laughs> of a book <laughs> or the start of a book. But yeah, pushing through, it was so helpful to me. And I think that carries over into revisions as well. Learning how to revise books and, and work on things that aren't good and try to make them mediocre and then take mediocre and try to make mediocre something better. It, it was a, a learning process for me. And so what is that self-editing process for you? Or if you can articulate it, what were you able to, to do to self-edit and improve? I learned the value of taking time away from your work. I, I think that time is one of the best things that you can give yourself as an author. And I think it's valuable. So I would finish projects and then I would um, do my best to leave them for two or three weeks or more, preferably. And then I would come back to the project with fresh eyes and I would reread. And then it would be a lot easier to pick out like the weak spots and, and find ways to address them. I also stopped editing the book as I went along. So before I would write a scene and then after I finished the scene, I would go back to the beginning and like essentially line edit it. And I realized that was in a way an advanced form of procrastination, let's say. And, and I needed that time and space away from the work to view it with fresh eyes and to know what was best for it. Also, something that has really helped me is I read the book out loud to myself, or if my voice can't take all of that, I will use like free programs online. There's many apps that'll do this where the computer will read you your work back. And that helps me a lot with like rhythm and cadence and even 
little things like finding crutch words that I use too often. So I highly recommend doing that. Having someone else read your work to you or reading it out loud yourself will train your ear. And I found that super helpful. Did you ever share your work with anyone else or work in any type of uh, writer's group before you started submitting to editors and literary agents? Yeah, so I did. In general, I'm pretty superstitious. I don't like to share too much of my um, novels specifically, only because I feel like sometimes I get my my little like ego booster reward by like having other people read the work, and then when they're like, "Oh, it's good," then I feel like I've done more than what I um, actually have, and and it makes me less likely to uh, finish the products because I've already gotten like positive reinforcement from other people. That said, I had a critique partner. Her name is Jean Thomas, who helped. She read through like the first act of The Year of the Witching. And I also entered into a contest called Pitch Wars after Jean read that first act. I submitted my book to a mentor, Ashley Hearn, who is, she's a brilliant editor. And she really held my hand and taught me how to revise and edit a book properly. And I learned so much from her during that process. So I think that not many people uh, saw the year of the witching specifically before agents and editors got it. But I, I think I like chose, I, I was lucky in that I, I feel like I chose and other people, I was lucky that other people chose me and read my book and gave me feedback that I still rely on and reflect on to this day. So what was the path to publication for the year of the witching? Did you work with an agent and, and what was it like when you finally got an offer? Yeah. So my agent is Brooke Sherman. He's really smart and he's a great editor in his own. And so I, through Pitch Wars, there's like a, they call it a showcase where your work is presented and agents can request the full manuscript or a partial. And I signed with Brooks through that process and it was just it was so rewarding to finally get to that point because I had queried another book before and I, I actually pulled it before um, I was finished querying it in order to focus on the year of the witching. And I had always, I think like most authors and writers had always dreamed of the moment that I would be able to sign with an agent. And it it was it's just, it was super exciting. And then from that point, I revised with Brooks, which I was a process that I learned so much through. I, I really learned a lot from him. And then he was able to sell my book to my editor at Ace. So would you recommend Pitch Force for someone listening who uh, is thinking about submitting a novel? Definitely. I think Pitch Wars, the real reward for me that I think that you're not guaranteed, but I think that the reward that most people walk away with from Pitch Wars is like you get feedback on your book for free, which is a great thing. And there's also just a a community. You You have all of these other writers who are going through the same process that you are. And it's a great way to enter the industry because you feel like you have like friends and acquaintances and colleagues built in. I've met some of my closest writing friends and just now just regular friends through Pitch Wars. And I think it's like a really valuable experience. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great. We're in the middle of a very turbulent year in the U.S., the national reaction and reckoning with the murder of George Floyd and a global pandemic, which is hitting America hard. And obviously you didn't write your book this year, but I do wonder about the issues of race and the national conversation about racial equity, in addition to issues around patriarchy and the Me Too movement. Do you think any of those issues were on your mind when you were writing The Year of the Witching? Definitely. Yeah. I I started writing um, The Year of the Witching maybe just prior to the Me Too movement coming to the forefront. It was around the same time. And I don't think that was any coincidence. I think there was a lot of turmoil and anger that many women were trying to wrestle with in their own way. And I think in some ways, The Year of the Witching was an exploration of that. And then, yeah, my character is biracial, but she's black biracial. And marrying those two issues and examining the intersections between race and and feminism and and the way those two interact was definitely present in the year of the witching. And yeah, it's eerie in a way to see some of the things that I was wrestling with, eerie and disappointing to see some of the things that I wrestled with in the year of the witching, causing so much, you know, turmoil and, and struggle right now. But I'm so grateful at the same time that um, these conversations are happening because it's long overdue and this reckoning is long overdue. I'm encouraged by that sure. too. That's great. What is the writing process like for you? Once you had the initial image that you mentioned earlier and started writing, did you stop at any point and work on a plot outline or did you just follow the story where it led you organically? I followed the story for a little while and then I thought, oh, maybe I should have a story, like an actual story to follow. And then I tried to outline and the outline failed. And then I just I flew by the seat of my pants for the rest of the book. I am a wannabe when it comes to outlining and, and plotting. I want to be able to to think that way and to be that organized, but I'm a little chaotic. And I just I felt like I was like tumbling down the rabbit hole when it comes to writing this story. Yeah, and, and I guess kept my fingers crossed and hoped it would all work out. I know that you grew up in the South where religion is very much front and center in a lot of people's lives in the community. Were you thinking about religion and that role in the community as you were writing The Year of the Witching? Yeah, definitely. Some of Emmanuel's experiences were inspired by mine. I was homeschooled. I I grew up in more conservative uh, sects of Christianity, and I was intimately familiar with that. And when I was writing The Year of the Witching, I did see a lot of my own experiences mirrored on the page. And I think that some of the book was me working through things that had happened in my own past in relation to like religion and religious fundamentalism. So that was cer- certainly prevalent. Yeah. And that was something that I lived through again as I was writing The Year of the Witching. 
So given your success thus far with uh, your debut novel, The Year of the Witching, and as you mentioned earlier, that whole process of starting when you were in your early teens of writing story, writing novels that you felt were cliched and then working your way up to having uh, Year of the Witching published by a, a major New York publisher, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels? Oh, the things that make you curious and excited. I think a, a trap that a lot of people fall into is trying to write like people they admire or are trying to write to the market or write things that they think they should write. And I think that the best and most kind thing you can do for yourself is just to write the things that you're most passionate about, whatever they are, and to follow your curiosity. Because publishing is, is quite hard. It's demanding. It's a long process. But I think that the North Star for me has been that I genuinely like and I'm interested in the kind of topics that I write about. And so at the end of the day, even if nothing would have come of the year of the witching, I still would have written a book that I enjoyed writing. So I think it's important to have that. It's almost like a touchstone to fall back on. And, and as you're navigating publishing, it can be you know difficult. But uh, if you have that, then I think it's enough to get you through just about anything. Great. So are you working on another novel now? I am. I'm writing the sequel to The Year of the Witching. I, it's, I can't even believe I get to say that because I never thought that I would be like allowed to write the sequel. But yeah, it was. It sold two books, so I get to write to continue Emmanuel's journey and see where it leads me. And have you thought beyond the second book? Do you think there might be more? Yeah, I think it's being a, it's a series now. Yeah, it's weird. I'm opening my creative like floodgates and letting letting myself explore the world in, in a way that I never thought that I would be able to. The world is, has grown so much bigger, and I'm excited that I get to embrace the challenge of, of bringing it to the page. Great. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I recently read The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. I thought it was absolutely brilliant and I, I love it. It's become one of my favorite books. So that one just sticks sticks out to me. It, it, it really it is unironically. It's very haunting and I find that I think about it regularly. So that was really, really good. And I've been reading some books. I, don't, I forget the title, but I've been reading some books on screenwriting lately just because I think it would be fun to try my hand at that at some point. Yeah. That's it for fiction and nonfiction. That's great. Where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel? So you can find me on Instagram at Lexis H, L-E-X-I-S-H. And then on Twitter, I'm Alex H. Writes. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Alexis Henderson, author of the debut novel, The Year of the Witching. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Alexis, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much for having me. I had so much fun. Great. So if you could just leave your browser open. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Year of the Witching by Alexis Henderson, read by Brianna Collette, available from Penguin Random House Audio and available wherever audiobooks are sold. That evening, the Moors gathered for their usual Sabbath dinner. Martha tended a bubbling vat of chicken stew that hung on an iron hook above the crackling fire, mopping sweat from her brow with the back of her hand. While she hunched over the hearth, Anna mixed batter bread with both hands, folding in fistfuls of flax seeds and crushed walnuts, singing hymns as she worked. Emmanuel ducked between the two of them, taking on different tasks and trying her best to be of help. She was clumsy in the kitchen, but she did what she could to aid them. Anna, ever cheerful, 
was the first to break the silence. It was a good service this morning, wasn't it? Emmanuel set a pewter plate down at the head of the table before her grandfather's empty chair. That it was. Martha said nothing. Anna plunged her fists into the bread dough again. When the prophet spoke, I felt like the air had been sucked right out of me. He's a true man of the father, that one. More so than other prophets, even. We're lucky to have him. Emmanuel set one spoon beside Martha's plate and another beside Honor's bowl. A little wooden thing she'd carved and polished some three summers ago when the child had been no bigger than a minnow in Anna's womb. For Anna's eldest, Glory, she reserved the brass spoon she liked best, an antique Martha had bought from a market peddler years ago. Glory, like her mother, had an appetite for pretty things, ribbons and lace and sweets and other delights the Moors couldn't afford. But when she could, Emmanuel tried her best to oblige the girl with little tokens. There were so few pretty things left in the house. Most of their treasures and trinkets had been sold during the thick of the winter in an attempt to make up for the bad reap and all the livestock they'd lost to sickness the past summer. But if Emmanuel had anything to say about it, Glory would have her spoon, a small token to offset their world of lack. When the meal was prepared, Martha carried the vat of stew to the table and set it down with a loud thump that carried through the house. At the sound, Honor and Glory raced into the dining room, eager to fill their seats and eat. The wives sat next, Emmanuel's grandmother, Martha, claiming her place at the opposite end of the table, as was custom, and Anna, second wife of Emmanuel's grandfather, claiming the seat beside her husband's empty chair. After a few long moments, there was the groan of hinges, the sound of a door opening, then the pained and shuffling racket of Abram making his way down the stairs. Her grandfather was having a bad day. Emmanuel could tell by the sound of his gait, the way his stiff foot dragged across the groaning floorboards as he moved toward the table. He had skipped church again that morning, making it the third Sabbath he'd missed in a month. Once, long ago, Abram had been an apostle, and a powerful one, too. He had been the right hand of Simon Chambers, the prophet who served before the current prophet, Grant Chambers, had been chosen and ordained. As such, Abram had once owned one of the seven estates in the sacred holy grounds, and he had wielded the father's gift of discernment. At age 19, he married Martha. The two of them were well yoked, both in age and in status. But despite this, the father did not bless them with children for a long time. In fact, after years of trying, Abram and Martha were only able to conceive Miriam, and her birth was succeeded by a series of stillborns, all of them sons. Many later claimed that Miriam's birth damned the children who were born after her, said that her very existence was a plague to the good Moor name. On account of Miriam's crimes, Abram had been stripped of his title as apostle and all the lands that went with it. The Moorstead, which had once been a rolling range, so big it rivaled the prophets, was divided up among the other apostles and nearby farmers, who picked it apart like vultures do a carcass. Abram had been left with a small fragment of the land he once owned, shadowed by the same rambling forest to which he'd lost his daughter. 
Such was the life he lived now, in ridicule and squalor, scraping together an existence from the meager reap of pastures and blighted cornfields that were his only claim. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.